you've heard me call them this before, but the Gospels in your New Testament are biographies. You can call them Matthew's Gospel or John's Gospel, but you can also refer to them as biographies because that's what they are. We have four biographies of Jesus Christ written by four different men from four different vantage points. You put them together and we have an incredibly accurate and detailed presentation of the life, the teachings, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these biographies differ from other biographies you might read. Now, I've told you I'm not a real big reader, but I, I've read many biographies. And, and one of my favorites was a biography on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I've read biographies on George Washington, Thomas Edison, John F. Kennedy, uh, Ronald Reagan, General Patton, General Eisenhower. Uh, these kinds of stories interest me. And one thing about those biographies is typically if it's a 300-page book or a 350-page book, the author will use the bulk of those pages and the overwhelming majority of those words to talk about the person's life, to talk about their family, to talk about their accomplishments, to talk about their principles or their philosophies. Um, and they'll reserve just maybe the last half of the last chapter for their death. Um, maybe the last chapter as a whole, but that's very different than the biographies that are in the Bible. Uh, the biographies in the Bible, the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they actually go very quickly until the last week of Jesus' life, then they slow down dramatically. The bulk of the pages, chapters, and words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's biography are reserved for the last week and the events leading up to the death of Jesus Christ. Now you say, that's strange. I wonder why that is so. Well, we know very little from the Bible or otherwise about the childhood and the upbringing of Jesus. We know very little, believe it or not, about his teaching ministry from the age of 30 to 33. But we know almost every fathomable detail about the events leading up to his death recorded for the last week because the bulk of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel biography cover them in detail. Now, that's interesting to me because, unlike Abraham Lincoln, Jesus wasn't born to be president. He wasn't born to gather a following. Jesus wasn't born to be a teacher or a great man or start some sort of political movement. The Bible teaches that Jesus was born... To die. He was born to die. And that's what we remember today is the sacrifice God made through Jesus, through sacrifice. We call it crucifixion. So today we're going to talk about sacrifice. Now, many people understand sacrifice, but many people don't understand this sacrifice. I did a little bit of research this past week and I found out that nearly half a million children are missing in the United States at the close of the year 2016. 460,000 children ages 17 and under are missing in the United States or were reported missing or had gone missing. Now, as you continue to dig into that and unpack it a little bit, you realize that that doesn't mean that they all met with some sort of tragedy or that they're all somehow lost. There are many, however, that are um, because of the Internet. The Internet is one of those things we have to take the bad with the good. But according to the National Council on Missing and Endangered Children, 
Last year alone, in 2016, in the United States of America, 4.4 million reports related to online enticing, sex trafficking, sexual molestation, and abduction. That's in America alone. 18,500 endangered runaways, most of them in the care of the state, foster homes and such as that, one in six of that 18.5 were victims of sex trafficking in the United States of America. Now, the number that surprises me, because I get that kids run away, and I get that online predators are out there, but the number that strikes me at first, it strikes me as low. But then as you think it through, it gets higher and higher and higher. Last year in the United States of America, 115 Young people, children, were the victims of the most serious, this is the way the FBI puts it, the most serious, heinous crimes of which 56% were recovered alive, but the rest were recovered dead. 115 of our kids. Think about this. Those gruesome stories that CSI covers in late night TV drama, those gruesome stories that, that Criminal Minds creates, on late night television drama, that involves 115 of our children. Now, how in the world could something like that happen in a civilized nation, the leading civilization like America? I remember a few years ago, there was a, uh, a picture of a little girl that was broadcast on all the news networks. I mean, CNN carried it and Fox carried it. All the local news channels were carrying it. They had captured this still shot from a video because that's all they had. They didn't know who this little girl was. She looked to be about eight years old, maybe 10 years old. She was in Las Vegas. They knew that as well. But the reason they were putting it out there for the public to see is they needed someone to identify this child, someone to help them find this little girl because the reason they got the video is because some twisted mind sent it to a news station and it showed that little girl being tortured sexually by a grown man. Now you say to yourself, how in the world can evil like that exist? Where in the world does that kind of evil originate? Why in the world would we have to address that kind of a subject in a service like this one? I think whenever we become face-to-face with that kind of evil, I think there's something inside us that stiffens. I think there's something inside us that wants to cry out for justice. We want someone to pay. We want to catch that violator. We want to catch that offender. And we wish we could be the judge and the jury and, in some cases, the executioner. I mean, imagine getting to don the robe and look across a bench at a violent sex offender who's hurt children over and over and over in our nation, and imagine you get to be the one to hand down the sentence. Now, while you've got that image in your mind, picture God as that judge. God wearing the robes, God with the gavel. But instead of picturing that vile sex offender standing before the bench, picture God's son Jesus Christ. Because it was that same outrage. It was that same righteous indignation. It was that same hatred for all that is evil around us that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Now I learned that from the time I was in Sunday school. Your kids are learning about Jesus, his death and why and how and what that looked like from the time they're part of Kids Jam in this church. 
Where in the world do we get this idea that the death of Jesus Christ or the life of Jesus Christ is all about his birth? It's all about his teachings. It's all about his miracles. The Bible says it's all about his death. That death being a sacrificial death. Because you see that same righteous indignation that you'd have toward that sex offender or toward that abductor or or toward that abuser. God has that same righteous indignation toward our sin. But remarkably, unlike what we have, he hates the evil, but loves the offender. Now, I think we can talk about that all day long. And I can tell you that's the way we should be. And I can tell you that's what Jesus would do. But I'm not sure many of us could do it. But somehow God does. A beautiful blend of righteousness, justice, fairness, penalty for sin, and love for the offender. I looked up the word sacrifice, since we're going to talk about it today. From Webster, it's, it's defined as follows. It's the act of depriving oneself. Now, first of all, notice the word act, A-C-T. We're talking about an action here. We're not talking about a virtue that we hope to aspire to one day. Sacrifice is not something you think you're capable of. Sacrifice is what you've done because it's an action. An action of depriving oneself of something for the sake of another. Now, if you're a parent, you know all about sacrifice. You know what it's like as a mom or a dad to make a decision with your child's best interest in mind, not necessarily your own. It might be a lot easier to let Nintendo and the internet and the television raise your child in the evening when you come home from a long, hard day's work. It might be a lot easier not to fight with them over their homework, not to fight with them about doing their chores, not to fight with them about eating a balanced diet, not to fight with them about cleaning their room. But you know for the good of that child, you as the parent have to put on your sacrifice hat and you've got to do what is best for them, not necessarily what's most convenient for you. If you're a mom or you're a dad, you know all about sacrifice. Look. If you've recently gone through a divorce and you vowed this time to date or do relationships God's way, you know what sacrifice is all about as well. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and your marriage dissolved or your relationship blew up or imploded, and now you've decided to do this dating thing differently, incidentally, next Sunday we're going to start a three-part series on relationships, and I hope you'll be a part of that, because it's not just about marriage, it's about dating, relationships, and marriage. But if you've decided to do that, you're going to make sacrifices in order to date God's way, to fall in love God's way. If you serve others, some of you have jobs that I'm not sure I could ever do. Uh, some of you are personal caretakers of other ungrateful human beings. <laughs> some of you work in the hospital profession. Some of you serve in various ways. Uh, some of you take care of, uh, some of you minister in this church. Some of you give up your Saturday night so you can take Two or three hours to put together a world-class Sunday school lesson for the kids you're going to teach on Sunday morning in Kids Jam. You know about sacrifice. You know what it is to give of yourself, your time, your resources, what you think is important gets set aside so you can look out for someone else. And then they act like they don't even appreciate it. Or then you're completely overlooked. You know what sacrifice feels like. Now... We all think, I believe, that we're capable of such sacrifice. We think we are sacrificial. I'll bet you deep down inside, you probably think, hey, I'm a pretty good dad. I'm willing to sacrifice for my kids, or I'm a great mom. I'm willing to sacrifice, but not like this sacrifice, I'm sure. We will sacrifice for someone we love, someone we deem innocent, 
But God sacrificed for us. Yes, he loved us, but we were anything but innocent. Now, remembering and forgetting is a fine balance. There's a precarious balance that can be struck by a wise individual, and the scripture reveals that there are some things we should always remember, and there are some things we should forget. Do you know that the Bible tells us we should forget what's behind us? That means we shouldn't rest on our laurels. That also means that we shouldn't keep dragging up the past. But the Bible says there are some things we ought to remember. Uh, skilled is the husband, crafty is the husband that always remembers his wife's birthday, but forgets which one it is. Is it 29, honey? Uh, meanwhile, she's like 48. Remembering what we're supposed to remember and forgetting what we're supposed to forget is one of the means to spiritual maturity. Now, I like to remember certain things. Uh, I like World War II memorabilia. I'm not a collector or anything, but uh, a lot of those books I've read have to do with World War II, the generals, the leaders, uh, the presidents. Uh, when I get a chance to visit some war memorial, I had the privilege about eight or nine years ago to stand on Omaha Beach Uh, And look up at that hillside and just imagine what that invasion looked like. Uh, One of my favorite movies of all time is Saving Private Ryan, which begins with that beach landing. It is powerful to me. It is a reminder that war is nasty, nasty business. And there have been tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and women throughout the years that have been willing to pay the ultimate price. And we need to remember that. In the Bible, very beginning, Genesis chapter 6, we're introduced to a man by the name of Noah. And by the end of Noah's story, the Bible says God put a sign in the sky. He put a ribbon. He put a bow in the sky that we might remember. In uh, Joshua chapter 4, God's people are about to enter the promised land. Moses is dead. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They cross the Jordan River. Joshua instructs 12 men, one from each tribe, to go back out into that dry riverbed, get a rock as big as they could carry, bring them back to the shoreline, and build a monument. Why? The text explains. So that from now on, you will remember. When your children see the monument, your grandchildren see the monument, your great-grandchildren see the monument, they will remember that God delivered us from our bondage in Egypt. And today, with communion, the Lord's Supper, Jesus and the cross, we're commanded to remember it. Many of you, I'm sure dozens of you in a crowd this size, have a cross around your neck. What does that cross symbolize? The crosses that are on our church steeples, what do they stand for? The cross that's sewn into your Bible cover, what does that represent? Well, as we prepare to remember this sacrifice, we're going to look at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 27. Because there are some things that we want to and that we need to forget, but there are some things that we want to and we need to remember. Let's read a few verses beginning in verse 45. Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. So this was either an eclipse event, a solar event, or God stacked up and packed in the clouds so thick and so dense that at noon it was dark. Verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, In a loud voice, Eli, Eli, this is Aramaic. 
Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, whenever I read the story of the crucifixion in my study Bible at home in my office, I typically write words that come to my mind in the margin. One of the words I wrote several years ago next to that verse is the word unreasonable. I was almost ready to get ahead of myself. Unreasonable. When I read verses 45 and 46, and I think about the creator, because according to John chapter 1, Jesus created the universe. The creator hangs on a cross and then says to his father, why have you forsaken me? One of the words that comes to my mind is unreasonable. It's too much. It doesn't make sense to me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This indeed, ladies and gentlemen, was a first for the Son of God. This was a first for the Creator. For the first time in eternal history past, God was ashamed of Himself. Let that sink in for a minute. For the first time in history, God was ashamed of himself. It's almost absurd when you think about it. It's definitely unreasonable. I mean, where's the justice in this? Jesus shouldn't have been on the cross. I should have been. Jesus never lied. I did. Jesus never stole. I did. Jesus never cheated. I did. And yet he's the one who's paying. And he's the one crying out, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's completely unreasonable to me. There's no fairness in sacrifice. If you consider yourself sacrificial and you plan to sacrifice for another, don't expect that sacrifice to feel or seem fair because it won't. That's an oxymoron. That's what sacrifice is by definition. That's one of the things that makes it so unreasonable. Skip down to verse 50. Matthew writes, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, John chapter 19 and verse 30 tells us what he said. Three words. It is finished. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is complete. It's done. It's finished. Believe me, it was finished. And one of the words that comes to my mind is sovereign. Some of us mistakenly assume that the Jews killed Jesus or the Romans crucified Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus killed Jesus. God killed his son. God executed the God-man, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished, believe me, it was finished. That's because he was sovereign. He was in control. The crowd wasn't in control. The Jews weren't in control. The Pharisees weren't in control. The Romans weren't in control. Jesus was in control. Here's what he did. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stared into the ugly face of death. He faced your fears. He stood nose to nose with the enemy. And he never batted an eye. Why? Because he was in control and no one else. Imagine, imagine accepting that responsibility. And yet he did. Skip down to verse 54. One more, two more verses, one more word. When the centurion, that grizzled, seasoned veteran, that professional executioner, a Roman centurion, 
and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, Surely, surely, he was the Son of God. Last word comes to my mind is the word noteworthy. Noteworthy. It was significant. How many thousands of men have died on those crosses outside that same city at the hands of the Roman government? Thousands upon thousands in that year alone. And yet, there's something significant about this one. There's something special about this one. That cross that's hanging around your neck, it doesn't represent one of those other thousands of executions. It represents one, his, right? We don't put crosses on our churches to remember someone else's death 2,000 years ago. That cross represents his death, his suffering, his humiliation, and his death. Last year in the state of Georgia, there were nine prisoners executed. I guess in electric chairs or gas chambers. Nine? Nine. If you'd ask me, how many men did the state of Georgia execute last year? I'd have guessed and said two, maybe. A lot more than that. Nine. That was a record up from five the year before. Let me ask you something. Do you know any of their names? Probably not. Unless you're somehow related to one of them. Unless maybe one of them is from your hometown and it was a big local news story. Most of us lived an average Tuesday that day or an average Thursday that day. We never gave any thought to that one of nine, that execution. And yet this one cross, out of potentially hundreds of thousands, this one cross, this one death, this one expiration... And we remember it to this day. That's because it was noteworthy. Surely, this guy says, he was the son of God. This is a career Roman soldier. How many sets of hands had he pierced through with spikes? How many? Who knows? Enough to be able to sleep at night, I imagine. Enough that it kept him from becoming nauseous at the sight of the blood and the sound of those crunching bones. How many men had he broken their legs on the cross to quickly or facilitate the dying process, to speed it up? How many men had he punctured with a spear to see if they were dead? How many? Songwriters, poets throughout the decades have looked at this one event, the significance of this one death, and they've attempted to blend two opposite things like good and evil in one scene, or sin and righteousness in one moment, or violence and grace in one snapshot of time. Michael Card is a songwriter. He wrote a book entitled A Violent Grace, and in it he writes, Jesus bled like any other man, but how he died proved that he was more than a man. He turned every existence of violence into a demonstration of divine power. And the results, even during the violence, grace triumphed. First, the thief dying alongside Jesus was won into the kingdom. And then the very soldier who carried out the sentence was won and moved to worship. Back in the days of the Spanish-American War, A story is told of a Polynesian king. In that particular culture, the greatest king, the strongest king, the physically most 
powerful and dominating king usually had the strongest people. But this king wasn't simply physically strong. This king was also known to be wise and uncompromising, morally capable. He gathered the people together. He would explain to them the importance of the rules, the importance of the law. He would say things like, people, the law keeps us safe. The law builds community and unites us brother to brother. And in spite of his rigid, uncompromising adherence to such laws, there were still problems in his village. For instance, someone was stealing bread. So he gathered the people again and he said, someone is stealing bread. Remember, the laws are here to protect you. So we're going to raise or increase the punishment from 10 lashes to 20. Please, he said, stop the stealing. People went on their way, but the stealing of bread continued. So he gathered the people together again. His voice began to quiver because honestly, he truly loved these people. And he reminded them one more time, the law is good. Stop the stealing. Now the penalty will be raised from 20 lashes to 30 lashes. The people went their way. Finally, word began to buzz throughout the village and the king was summoned. They had caught the thief red-handed. The king took his place. The guards were standing before him. The crowd began to separate in the back as one of his lieutenants brought a woman before the king. The closer she got to this king the longer his face became until his mouth fell wide open because it was his own mother. He looked at the man standing next to him and gave him a nod. The soldier came over and took the robe down from this aging woman's back, revealing the frail, crooked spine of her body. He looked at another soldier and he gave a nod and that soldier began to unwind the whip. And then in an instant... Much like what we've discussed today, that king removed his robe, exposing his broad shoulders, suntanned and solid. He wrapped his arms around his own mother. Cheek to cheek, he whispered in her ear. His tears began to flow as the lashes came down one after another after another. Him shielding his frail and broken mother from the violence of justice. Now, ladies and gentlemen... That and so much more is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. And in our modern way of doing things, in our modern way of thinking, it's easy as we live, as we problem solve, as we exist, to forget what we should always remember. So I'm asking you today, will you remember? Will you remember this when you collide with someone at work and you're certain it's their fault? When you can't get along with someone in your circle of influence and you are certain they're to blame. When you try to solve problems in your home only to somehow create more new problems. Will you remember? His sacrifice was unreasonable. (laughs) My worship in response might be unreasonable too. His sacrifice was sovereign. He should become the sovereign in my life as well. And his sacrifice was noteworthy. Let me ask you a question. Do others see Christ in you? Here's how we're going to do this. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand. We're just going to start in the back, in the very back, down these side aisles. 
and you're going to walk down this aisle. Someone will be standing here and you can take a piece of bread, take a cup, return to your seat via the outdoor, the outside aisles. And when you get to your seat, sit back down. Okay, we'll all be singing. I want you to think about the words as we sing. Once everyone has taken and once we've all returned to our seats, I'll jump back up here and I'll lead us in remembering with the bread, his broken body and with the cup, his shed blood. For without it, in this snapshot of history, we have the blending of violence and grace in beautiful harmony. Let's pray. Father, this is your time. Help us remember. We celebrate and give thanks for your body that was broken, that we might know freedom. For your blood that was shed, that we might know forgiveness. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your son. In his name I pray. Amen. Would you stand? I'll ask my guys to take their place, if you will. While the music plays, just start in the back, please, and come forward. And remember, when you get back to your seat, go ahead and have a seat. God bless you.